0: This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast.
1: This is why it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here.
0: And now, here's your
1: host. And we are back. This is Matt Caraccio from the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. And the summer seminar series keeps rolling along, and I am incredibly excited to... to introduce you to somebody that I had the opportunity to meet at the 2019 Sport Movement Skill Conference out in Minnesota. Uh, Somebody that uh, really just impressed me with his overall passion and knowledge for just athletic performance and sport. I'm talking about the Director of Sports Performance at DeFranco's Gym, Mr. Cameron Joss. Cam, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a nice fun time, I think for, for both of us. And uh, it was great to be able to connect with you at the sport movement skill conference this year. And uh, just excited to see what we can talk about over the next couple minutes here.
1: Well, I'm sure if many of us out there have been following along with this series a little bit, the, the goal here, the essence here is to kind of discuss the nature of the problems that players face on the field of play. And I know that, really your specialty or or the area in which you're most passionate about is really the game of football and i think it's fantastic that you're you're right there because on the football podcast it would make a ton of sense to really go in depth in terms of exploring some of these problems from that from your perspective as a performance director in terms of what these players are feeling and how you have to represent those environments in your sessions and really you know, how you've come to understand the problems that they face along. So it's almost like, can you take us, uh, Cameron, a little bit on your journey in terms of understanding really what confronted your players, your clients, in terms of the nature of the problems they were facing on the field? Where did you come from as as a practitioner to where you are now?
0: So really the thing that, I mean, that launched me into the field, you know, I... I really embraced the, the title of sports performance um, because, you know, I was an athlete. I played football myself, but I was never, I was never a naturally gifted player. So I was somebody that always had to work to attain whatever I could by playing the sport. So what really launched me into the field, I guess, uh, of strength and conditioning initially is that I just wanted to understand, is it possible to take somebody that might be overlooked and develop them to where all of a sudden they're a competent player in a sport and potentially a very, very good player in a sport. Um, You know, Perhaps somebody that's just under the line where they're not being noticed, but with a little bit of development, can they achieve great things in their given sport? So for me, that's what launched me into this field. So obviously everything started with reading into strength and conditioning. So I was just trying to figure out how to Help guys lift weights, try to teach them how to get in good positions, how to understand a little bit about how the body works. Right. So, for a very long time, my entire focus was on just what Fergus Connolly refers to as the physical co active. So, I'm just, I was just looking at how to develop guys physically. And as my careers progressed, I've, and reading a lot of books and talking to a lot of coaches, you start realizing there's so many other things that go into sports performance than just what they're physically capable of doing. And that includes their ability to understand the tactics of their sport. So if you're talking about football, if you have a guy who understands the playbook very well, that's really going to help us because it really doesn't make a lot of sense to throw an athletic freak out there that just has no idea what he's doing. He needs to understand how to operate within the system based on what the coach wants to see. And then you look at things like the technical coactive, which we're trying to understand how we can help athletes achieve their sport skills related to their position and how to do them um, effortlessly, efficiently, and effectively. So we want to make sure that they can operate within the confines of their position in terms of the skills that go into that, whether it's just getting in a good position or intercepting a pass or, or whatever it might be. So can they do the skills for their position? And then lastly, which I think is a really big one. And I, and Fergus would agree with me on this is the whole psychological coactive, which many of us tend to really ignore is not, we we don't pay attention to how our athletes mentality is affecting their performance. And I think that's where um, the field needs to shift in, in that direction to understand mentally what's going on as well. Um, I think the other three coactives, for the most part, all of us can agree, make a lot of sense, right? We need to develop guys physically. We need to make sure they understand the playbook. So the sport coaches understand that side. The technical side is kind of a blend of those two. Like, can they move well and can they also move for what the playbook is determining? But really, if you look at the highest level of of football or really any sport, you know, the things that hold guys back is that psychological coactive as well. So that's a major, major part of sports performance. But where my career is at this point is understanding the sport in the context of the sport. So if I'm looking at football, I can't just tell a guy get bigger, stronger, faster. I have to understand all of the nuances of how he's performing in the sport context. And then you have to spread it out even further and understand how groups of players interact. And then the whole team on one side of the ball and then the whole team in general, like collectively You know everybody who's on that roster, how do they all come together? And that includes everybody from your starting players to your second string to your scout team. Everybody's super important in that entire process. And for me, at my point in my career now, where I'm trying to understand true sports performance, those are all of the areas that I'm trying to understand a lot better. And you know,
1: what I love about the way you just ended that discussion was you talked about it as, I got to really understand this all together. Because is there really ever... An opportunity where you're separating everything indiscriminately, I mean Cameron when you're when you're dealing with your clients or you're dealing with your players, are you ever really siloing it completely down to here's a basic benchmark period that's it skill achieved check mark is it really ever that way, or is it as you alluded to, all very much connected
0: oh it's all interconnected. And the more you're involved in coaching, the more you see that whether or not you're truly aware of that, you're you're at least subconsciously aware of that. Because even if we're in the weight room, and we're just doing something like a bench press in the bench press, you have all of these aspects too. like you have to physically be able to do the exercise, you have to have the right technique while you're doing it, you have to have a good mindset going into it. If you're feeling like, you know, crap, you're not going to go in there and like have a good bench press workout. And even tactically, it's, it's good to understand, like, why we're doing that. How is that helping me? Uh, you know, so there's the four coactives are, are present at all times, no matter what activity we're doing. Um, anything that goes into sports preparation or goes into the sport itself, these things are always going to be present at all times. And they influence each other. And they're completely interrelated. And we can't lose sight of that. We can never try to silo any of it. And in order to understand everything in its true context, we have to really take uh, bird's eye view and see the forest through the trees, and then we can still harp on specific issues, or you know what Fergus would refer to as uh, limiting factors of performance. But we still have to understand how those are going to affect everything else. So, right, everything's really in sports performance is really non-linear. So, just because you're you can operate well at a certain skill right now. There's other factors that might come into play later, like fatigue or I'm mentally stressed or something like that that's going to affect my ability to perform that skill. So everything's nonlinear. It's always just kind of chaotic. Right. It's not necessarily random per se. Sometimes it can be. But chaotic is probably the best word to use it. There's a certain order to how everything works, but we have to try to do our best to understand the chaos and the complexity that goes into you know, a team sport athlete.
1: Well, I think like one of those words, and this is something that I know um, later on in the series we'll have an opportunity to explore chaos uh, a little bit more, and maybe some of the, the 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 tangential phrases and ideas that go along with that. Um, chaos seems to seems to have evolved in many ways into a convenient explanation, and in many ways a misnomer as well. And it seems like you know we're always jockeying back and forth between what chaos is and what it isn't. And I, I'm just curious, as you begin to, you, you mentioned several times to kind of switch gears and highlight a point that I know you must be itching to talk about because I'm excited as a practitioner, as a as just a fan, and, and I would say somebody who studies movement science, who reads everything that they can, skill acquisition, ecological dynamics, you're working on a very exciting series of books right now. Uh, with Dr. Fergus Connolly uh, about really football itself. Do, do you think you can give us and listeners a little bit of a window into what that project is all about? And maybe we can unpack several of the details, maybe in a little bit more depth.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, really the premise of the entire series is um, these these are principles that can be used in really any team sport. And that's that's Fergus's mission is to have these principles in place and how they are very similar across different sports. But what we want to do, we've been using football as a primary example in this book series, because that's, that's where most of my knowledge is and considering that we're working on it together. um, It just made sense to take a football minded funnel, but we, everybody can keep in mind that like the principles that we're presenting are going to be something that can be used for um, really any, any team sport, especially ones that operate on a field. So What we're trying to do with the book series is get people more uh, inclined to look at the sport itself and work backwards from there. So a lot of coaches talk about doing that. Just look at the sport, work backwards from there. Um, But what we're trying to do is provide a roadmap for doing that. Because it's like like if you take football players and you just tell them to watch film, right? They could spend two hours in the film room and not absorb anything. Because if they don't know what they're looking for, they're not going to get anything out of that. So just to tell somebody to, hey, just look at the sport, all the answers are there. While that's true, it's not helpful because if you don't know what you're looking for, then you don't understand how to learn about the game in context. So what we're trying to do with the book, especially with volume one, which is the first book that's going to come out, is present just this idea of the game, right? In Fergus calls it the game model. So we're trying to look at the game through this game model, which is basically just a series of principles that we can use to understand each moment of the game and have principles associated with each moment. And then from there, that will dictate to us how we go about trying to prepare our players for each of those moments guided by those principles in the sport itself. So just as like a really simple example, if we're talking about offense, right? That's a global moment is is offense. Like offense is a moment of the game. We understand that. So in offense, you have in the book, we talk about uh, micro moments. So there's just moments that occur in sequence on offense. So in order to just operate successfully on offense, you need construction. That's like the first micro moment. So we have to construct ourselves into a formation and it has to be something that's that we that we've planned. Right. We have this construction of what we're trying to do in order to make an offensive play happen. And then the next moment is penetration. We have to penetrate our opponent's territory, take up their field space. And then lastly, we have to be able to execute the actual play. So while we're penetrating their space, that might be like the receivers coming off the line, starting their routes or running their routes or their linemen coming off and hitting their blocks. But the last moment of offense is going to be execution where we have to catch the pass or we have to try to run through the gap that the linemen are creating for us. If we're doing a run play, right? Those are things that are always going to happen in sequence. So If you take those micro moments, you can go back to film and say, all right, at what point in that offensive sequence on each play did we make a mistake or that where were we limited? Was it the way we lined up? Was it the way we came off the ball initially? Or was it just that everybody was in the right place at the right time and we just couldn't catch the ball or something like that? That helps us scout the offensive moment a lot better. And then you have principles associated with the offensive moment and for offense we look at basically 5 to 6 different principles so we can talk about penetration as a principle as well how do we achieve that right we 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 tell our offensive players like we have to penetrate their space like we can't just go backwards in our own territory that doesn't make any sense for offense so penetration itself could be a principle we can talk about support right we all have to support each other So uh, I I love the example of using a wide receiver because you could say, listen, if you're if you decide you don't want to run block when it's a run play, you're not supporting the rest of the offense. You're going directly against what makes offense work. So you have to make sure that you're doing your job and supporting the rest of your teammates. Right. And then we can talk about depth versus width. We have to be able to attack the field with depth and we also have to be able to attack it with width. So we need to make the field as big as we possibly can. That's the the central premise of the spread offense is really just making the field. Can we attack it to the width of the field? Can we attack downfield? Right. And we have movement in general. So we're just talking about how we can understand how to use our players and their movement to achieve our tactics on offense. So players have to understand the way that they move. Like if one, if you're supposed to run the guy off, if you're supposed to run the linebacker off with a vertical route, there's a reason why we're doing that. We're moving him out of the way so the guy running the dig underneath or whatever now has space so we can get the ball into space. right? And then lastly, we can talk about maybe misdirection, which is we're trying to use – we have to really sell things in order to disguise our true intentions on offense. So if we're doing play action or something like that, like you have to sell putting the ball in the running back's hands if it just looks like a joke they're going to not pick up on that that's their their perception of that is going to be all right they're passing the ball they're not going to be sold on that so those are just like an example of some of the offensive at the moment we talk about defense we talk about everything else too
1: well no and I, and I think what's fascinating about that to kind of bring it back to a point that you had said earlier in terms of looking at those coactives when you're beginning to profile you know, the success or failure of a player now. And again, I don't want to use the word failure because that it's so judgmental and that's not necessarily always the case, which is why we're, we're creating these different kind of buckets in terms of understanding their performance. How do we begin to Within this kind of discussion, unpack a player's effectiveness or functionality on the field in any given moment. Do we are the the principles are obviously this guiding kind of compass for us, but how do we begin to then get down to that more granular player level? How do we begin to kind of profile them within the construct of maybe this entire offensive, uh, you know, engagement or defensive engagement that we're seeing on the
0: field? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at like all those, all those uh, micro principles I just talked about, right. Um, like the penetration, the support, attacking the width, the depth of the field, right. Those are micro principles associated with offense. There's some that associate for defense as well. I won't list all of them. They'll be in the book, but when it really, what it really comes down to that's super simple is that on, on offense, we're just trying to create space, right? That's the broad macro principle. So at all times we're trying to create space. So how do we, how do we do that with our offensive players? Defensively, It's just the opposite. We're trying to constrain space. So if we understand like, that's just like everything we're doing on offense is to create space, whether it's create space for our ball carrier, our running back, or to create space in order to find a window to throw the football into, Uh, you know, every player on offense, if they just understand at all times, we're trying to create space. That's why as a lineman, I have to physically move somebody out of the way to create space. Then everything we're doing in training backwards from that is just, like garnered into making sure that we can create space and then vice versa on defense where we're trying to close space down. So if we work backwards from there, then for one, do they understand psychologically mentally that that's what they have to do? And that's also associated associated with tactics, right? So we can see the blend right there. Like, do they have the mindset to understand like we need to just like create space as much as we can, if we're talking about offense, right? And then, Do we, do we understand tactically why we have certain plays that are designed to do that zone blocking, you know, man blocking, whatever it might be, if we're talking about offensive line or certain routes that we're running are there to create space. Right. And then technically, do we have the technique associated with that? And then lastly, you know, physically, can we physically achieve that as well? Is the lineman strong enough to move somebody out of the way? Is the receiver fast enough to get to the zone? Um, the proper timing and the proper sequence based upon the offense that we're running. So we have the endurance that allows us to keep going from there. So we have to look at it through all of these different funnels and then try to figure out where our limiting factors are. And they're, they're, it's not like there's just going to be one limiting factor, but we can focus on the primary thing. So what's interesting in, um, the first book is that Fergus had these diagrams, right? Where one of them says, does our, does our player play strong? And then the other one is, does our player play fast? Right. Cause we can look at coaches who are like, our players aren't strong enough, you know, cause they're not bench pressing 400 pounds or something. Like what, what's that, what does that metric have to do with anything really when you look at it? Because in my experience, I've worked with NFL linemen, especially NFL tackles, that are lankier guys, and, and they don't bench press that much, relatively speaking, to you know other positions or just other strong bench pressers. But these are guys that have really long arms; they can just drive guys off the ball. So let's look at the film first, right? Uh, in the film, is he is he blowing somebody up off the ball? If so, then we can say, guess what? He he plays pretty strong. I don't really think that's a major limiting factor for him, right? Vice versa. If we see somebody who just alignment, for example, that can't drive a guy off the ball, what's going on with that? Is it because he's weak? Like, does he just need to get stronger in the weight room? Does he have weak legs, weak, you know, pressing muscles and just upper body? Or is it because uh, he doesn't have the right technique? Is his leverage off? Does it does it not make sense? Is he unsure of who he's supposed to block? Is that why he can't do it? Because he's he's caught out of position because he doesn't really know what he's doing tactically. Or psychologically, is he just afraid of contact? (laughs) Does he not want to just go maul somebody? Like, is he just kind of a softer personality, right? So you start looking at, like, through these four coactives, how these players are operating on the field. So I think too many coaches are looking at physical constructs, but they're not necessarily spending a lot of time um, on the other coactives. And just as a short example, when I was playing in college, there were plenty of guys on the field that were physically just dominant guys, but they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to line up. They didn't know who they were supposed to cover. I was a DB. So um, I worked with the other, you know, I was, I was in the group of DBs. Some guys just didn't know who they were supposed to cover. They didn't like necessarily have the right technique to do it, but you know, coaches like them because like, Hey, they're really fast in a 40 yard dash, or they're pretty strong in the weight room, or they've got great explosive ability. Right and it's just like this misconstrued ideology where we're not looking at the game we're just looking at random data points that we we don't understand in context so if we look at the game first then we can start to understand things in context
1: and and you know what i'm curious about is your perspective about i you know i noticed you talked about you know looking at the game and how maybe we fall in love with the aesthetics that is a particular position, what they should look like, how they should play the game. And then you get, you know, a traditional athletes that don't necessarily fall within the confines of your traditional benchmarks, whether it be uh, anthropomorphically, or even in terms of performance thresholds in the gym. But yet they're able, like you say, on the field to play strong or play fast. And even within that understanding because i know some of your background in understanding performance would say you know not every player is going to have the same solution to the same problem they may do it in their own way where does where does kind of authenticity kind of play a role in terms of maybe building these synergies within the team itself because i wonder to what degree um modern coaches future coaches even coaches right now to what degree are players and coaches aware of their teammates capabilities around them and how that may or may not shape the way they solve problems on the field? Is that where do you think that kind of fits the authenticity of the individual within the confines of the of the team sport itself?
0: Again, I think if you work back from the game, so for me, it's always going to be task based first, right? Like what's the task? And can they solve that problem? So can the quarterback get the ball to the right receiver at the right time? If he can do that, he can solve that task. Does he have the most perfect throwing motion in the world? You know, like arguable, right? That's something that we can argue based on biomechanics or whatever it might be. But look, if you're a coach, you need a guy that can get the job done, right? You don't have to stress over like this perfect throwing motion. Um, you know, like So I had this discussion with um, Stu McMillan at Altus uh, the other day. And also just some of my other strength coach friends where we're looking at, you know, what are we doing in the weight room or in strength and conditioning? Like, what what are we trying to do? Really, what we're trying to do is just hammer down basic biomechanical principles for the for the purposes of efficiency and safety. Right. So if if players are moving in a way that's just like unsafe, we need to address that. Right. So that's if you look at uh, dynamical systems theory of of movement, like they talk about the idea of attractors versus fluctuations. So attractors are going to be the stable biomechanical components of movement. So those are almost inarguable. Like they still are, I guess you could consider arguable. But to a degree, it's just based on physics. Right. So it's like if if they're not operating efficiently based on physics, there's a chance of them moving in a way that's unsafe. So we need to make sure that we understand the physics associated with movement as best we can, which is what biomechanics is all about understanding positions and the forces that, that cause those positions and get athletes into certain shapes. So if we can really study that, we can figure out how to keep athletes in a safe position. But once those are in place, then the rest of their performance is going to totally operate based on a certain movement bandwidth, right? So the movement bandwidth that we're talking about, that's a fluctuation. So running back going to make a cut, like some of the attractors that we would focus on is, listen, you need to lower your center of mass. You need to drop your hips in order to become more stable. That's inarguable. If you're not going to lower your hips when changing direction, then you're not going to be as stable Um you know, then if you were to lower your hips. So the other thing is you want to plant outside of your center of mass. Obviously the foot's always going to be outside the center of mass to redirect the movement in a different direction. These are all attractors that we're talking about that we can teach. We can reinforce those things, just get them to understand. Cause really they're just movement principles. They're not exact positions. So that's where fluctuations are going to be key because, and that's where we have to take uh, hands off as coaches is all right. That guy's lowering his hips into his cut. Now, the degree to which he lowers his hips, the depth of his hip drop and the lowering of his center of mass is going to be based on the task that he sees in front of him, right? So if he just sees a guy who's in a certain position and he can make a quick cut just in and out and he doesn't have to like cover that much ground, he can lower his center of mass a little bit and just make a quick cut and then keep moving and he's bypassed that that defender, then great, he accomplished the task he was in a biomechanically safe position and he just didn't have to lower his hips that much in that particular situation. Now maybe you're, you're running to the outside. You have two guys attacking you from the inside in trying to come tackle you. Then you have to really like sink your hips super low, get a ton of stability and do this major jump cut almost off both feet to just like cover enough ground to get inside those two defenders and and break their ankles. Like that's another fluctuation. Now it's just like, I have to do what I need to do to get the task done. But so, you know, in in strength and conditioning, we're trying to reinforce those safe positions. But when we're talking about game based activities or sports practice, like we should be focusing on the task. As long as they're moving safely, we should just let them do that the way that they're going to do it. The way a quarterback throws the football is going to be a little bit different based on a ton of different things. Guys are built very differently. They have different strength abilities, they have different power abilities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't get the job done. And that's what we need to focus on most is just the task and can it, can, the, can that problem be solved.
1: I would like to just can the last 30 seconds of what you were saying and make it my bookmark on social media, because <laughs> that is that is precisely what, I, you know, the, the player problem solver paradigm for evaluation is really all about. You know, I, I will never be able to you know, be in the weight room with these guys, if I'm watching a guy in film, and I'm never going to be able to interact with coaches in the same way that other evaluators or scouts that are working for teams might, you know, I'm left with the game film, which you've painted a very clear picture is immensely rich in terms of understanding, you know, the player's movement skill on the field. But the thing that I I think is fantastic is you keep coming back to this idea of, you know, we can't be hamstrung by, perfect positions and what perfect motions may look like. Rather, we have to start thinking more holistically about the problem in front of them and their ability to meet the demands of that problem in front of them. And I'm curious, as you started to allude to this idea of teaching with games, um, it was something that for listeners out there, if you haven't had the opportunity to even think about coming to the Sport Movement Skill Conference, I, I can't reiterate enough how intriguing of an opportunity it should be for you and something you should bookmark because Cam um, really did an outstanding presentation on, uh, you know, teaching through games and this idea of educating players, especially in football through games. And you did an outstanding, you know, workshop with us as coaches and as, you know, um, fans like myself, where we, we got a chance to embrace some of these ideas and, and see them in work, you know, at work in play in games. And I'm curious you know, as you're creating these environments, as you're as you're trying to unpack the information that is important for movement, you know, on the field, you know, how do you begin to to kind of do that and how do you begin to kind of scale it or individualize it? to a player or groups of players? Does it, is it something where you're taking film, you're going back, um, you're using their film as a base mark, a a baseline, so to speak, to what types of games you may want to develop? How does, take us maybe inside a little bit of that, that brain of yours, obviously don't give away all your trade secrets, even though I'm kind of asking for them. Um, But, (laughs) but kind of, how do you begin to kind of unpack, you know, a player and what we need to do to improve their play on the field from that game's perspective. And again, maybe give people understanding of games perspective if they're not familiar.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would love to go into it and touch on it. And um, this is all something that in my career is relatively new that I've embraced. And um, I, in my setting here in the, in the private sector, um, I I'm not using a lot of game film to determine what I'm doing because Uh, These guys come from all different disciplines. Sometimes I'll mix guys together. Sometimes if a a high school guy is like fairly advanced, I'll just throw them in with NFL guys. I want them to have that exposure. Um, So for me, it's really just about understanding the typical game situations uh, that would occur just no matter who you are and what team you're you're playing or whatever. Um, So here, what I'm doing is a lot of focus on a lot of matchup situations. So, in the next book we don't touch on it too much in volume one but in in the next uh, books to follow um in in the series that i'm writing with fergus we're going to touch on just these broad classifications of different drills and, and game-based activities that that you can use and some of them are closed in nature so i've been a pretty big um just critic of closed drills for a while but i've been um also understanding that sometimes you can use closed drills to reinforce the attractors that we talked about before you can have a guy in a warm-up drill make a cut just on air so he understands that stability of lowering a center of mass so um, we have different categories associated with closed drills that goes all the way into like the weight room and everything like that and then in terms of our open based activities we have what's called tactical drills or you could understand those as being maybe matchup games so really we're looking at one-on-one situations possibly two-on-two situations so it is kind of a game-like feel to it. You know, the most traditional obvious one would be a wide receiver versus DB one-on-one situation. But um, for me, I try to scale those those drills from simple to complex. And so at first, maybe it's just like setting players up to understand that they have to read each other's hips, right, their center of mass. So a lot of guys don't even understand that, where if I'm on defense and I need to go, like, attack somebody's leverage and make sure that I, I – close in and constrain space. I have to read his hips because his hips are going to tell me where he's going. And, but the same thing happens on offense where if you're in a one-on-one open field situation, if you can read that guy's hips across from you, get them to point in a certain direction, you can manipulate him to do what you want So Now I am setting you up so I can exploit the space behind you or something like that. Right. So um, honestly, like my biggest influence for those situations has been special team oriented situations because I think if you're somebody who can operate well on special teams, because those are just really hard matchup situations. Um, you think about like kick return, like you run, you turn around, and the guy's already got full speed. You got to pick him up somehow, right, and get in his way. Like that's a really hard situation. If you can do that, I think there's a lot of similarity to being able to do that and then covering somebody on a route too. So it's just about like these universal concepts of like, can I can I pick somebody up in space and stay with them? Can I go attack and meet him? Like we're, we're both coming at each other. And then I can still make sure he doesn't find the space um, around me and I can close in and just and just go get him. And I'm a good open field tackler or, um, you know, we're not actually tackling in the games here. We have flag belts and things like that. But it's just teaching players to start tracking, um, you know, the other players and understanding, like, the information they're presented with. How is that going to dictate what they need to do? Right. And a lot of these games are going to be pass fail, which makes them awesome, because now it's not like, was that done was that drill done with good form? Like, it, it, there's no like question of that because really the first thing is like, look, you either got the guy or you didn't, or you either made the guy miss or you didn't. And if you didn't, we need to figure out why that was. You know, was it your positioning? Was it just that your eyes weren't in the right place? Or it, so you have this whole perceptual cognitive side of development that a lot of coaches will chalk up to to being um, something that can't be coached, right? They're just like, oh, he's got this innate ability to just make guys miss, and he's got this just you know, uncanny ability to, to run routes and just like get open. And, you know, but those are things that at some point you got to learn those things. So if we understand how those things are learned, we can develop them. And basically in these matchup situations, these tactical drills, we are totally utilizing perception and information processing. uh, You know, so if I have to read the guy across from me and that's going to dictate what I then do, it's my interaction with the environment and my environment's reaction to what I'm doing as well. Like if I do something, he's going to do something. And then when he does that thing, I have to do something else. You know what I mean? So it's this constant interaction the whole time that you're now developing the speed at which you're able to see that stuff. So in these one-on-one situations, you're just taking a game situation, diluting it all the way down into that one-on-one matchup situation, which a lot of times in football is like your money situations, right? If you give up that... That play, if you're a defensive back, you're on an island, and you give that up, like that's a major play in football that, that happens. So, and then from there, you can obviously scale it out into doing more multiplayer games. And the, what we categorize in the books is that you have tactical games, which um, tactical games would be very sport specific. So we're talking about football practice at that point, right? Seven on sevens would be a tactical game situation, very football specific. So that's going to be we're going to be a lot more hands off with that. In the off-season training, because that's going to start to come into play as the season comes around. But we can use small-sided games that are basically generalized activities that are very similar to, like, physical education, where now we can do three-on-three, five-on-five, or if we wanted to, we could go seven-on-seven. Seven. But the concept of those games is to use something that's not the sport, but understanding at the same time that all team sports are going to have the same global principles associated with them. So, at some point in every team sport, the players are going to structure and formulate themselves, whether they're attacking or defending, right? That's always universal. Whether it's football, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, you have to create a formation in order to accomplish your tactical aims. There's going to be some level of ball circulation, or if it's hockey, it could be a puck, just some kind of sport object. And that's going to dictate what everybody's doing. Everybody's got to be aware of where they're their guy is that they're covering or that they're going against where their teammates are. They have to understand where the, where the ball is too at all times. These are things that are just like present in all these team sport games. They have to understand player circulation, which means like, where am I, where are my teammates, where are my opponents? Right. And I just touched on that as well. And then the relationships between all of those factors that are going to determine the sequencing and timing of my actions and his actions and his actions over there. Like, what's the relationship with all this stuff? And we're developing all of these, no matter what team sport we're playing. So if we take football players and we have them play ultimate Frisbee, it's got, you know, seemingly nothing to do with football, but the movements are very similar. The principles are very similar. We still have to understand spacing. How do we manipulate space? If we're on offense, how do we create space? If we're on defense, how do we close it down? Same exact principles, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. So whether it's like floor hockey, whether it's, you know, ultimate Frisbee, even if we're doing something like tennis, Right, where it's like a net game or volleyball, there's still aspects of teamwork that's that's going on. Communication, formation, and structure. Where's the ball? Where's the ball going to be? You know, where's he gonna be? What's going on here? What are they setting up? It's just it's you you still work on that perceptual cognitive speed in a multiplayer setting. And at the same time, guys are having fun and they're developing a lot of physical qualities that we're looking for as well. They can still develop change of direction ability, they can develop game speed, they can develop Explosive efforts. If you're playing volleyball, you jump for the ball. That's an explosive effort, right? So now we're just doing everything through a game-based lens. So whether we're doing one-on-one situation or something like, I'll have my guys play like med ball volleyball, for example, or you know, like an ultimate frisbee type of variation, and we'll condition by using those games too. So I'm not touching on their tactical games. I'm not touching on what they're doing with their actual teams. They're going to go back and do that when they when they work with their teams, right? Um, But I can still help develop their brains for perception and action, and just that whole perception action cycle, and allow them to react to what they're seeing and picking up on information and just looking at their environment and just understanding that, like, if I move too fast, that might be the wrong movement. So, like, speed kills, but the right speed kills, right? Optimal speed kills, not necessarily maximum speed. If I move too fast, I'm going to tire myself out. Now I'm useless, right? I need to make sure I understand how to almost run less, but move more efficiently so that I can keep operating at a high level. So there's all these weird things that are, it's very fuzzy, right? Like that's when we're training athletes for these things, it's a fuzzy aspect of development because as a coach, you have to understand that you just put the game rules in place. You let them play the game. And that's, that's really hard for a lot of coaches to do because you don't get to talk as much when these things are going on, but you're allowing players to explore their environment, explore their own movement solutions. And a lot of times they'll figure things out that you might not have really been able to teach them anyway. And they just figure it out on their own. And that's why we talk about non-linear skill acquisition over time.
1: No. And I, I mean, first of all, the number of things that you went into, first of all, it was astounding. And I think the, the examples that you provided and the context with which you shared them really leaves little commentary on my part. I think it stands alone as being a really excellent discussion about how all of these actual different dimensions of play are woven together within terms of the team, the individual, as well as the game itself. And this is, this is where, uh, you know, as we, as we kind of bring this to a close, because you've been so generous with your time and I don't want to monopolize it, but I, I will ask you if you had to leave kind of one kind of enduring thought for a coach or a fan or an evaluator when they're watching games this season in football, what what might be that kind of salient point or, or lingering thought that you might want to leave people with?
0: Well, really the biggest one that frustrates me the most when you look at, at least in the media, because I'm not in scouting rooms with coaches, so I don't know necessarily exactly what they're scouting but what they portray on the media that frustrates me the most is that if you're scouting a player you know don't just be sold on his 40-yard dash or don't be sold on his size or something like that right like let's look at how that player plays football and also what kind of person he is at the same time because if we're just over stressing things like the 40-yard dash like you have to look at like what are we trying to do here like what's what are we trying to set up for our system? What kind of players are we looking for? Um, Not just physically, what can they, can they do what we're asking them to do from the playbook, but are they going to be people that we like to work with? Right. Are they going to be people that they're going to come in the building? We're going to just love working with these guys. They're going to be totally just because at this point, it's a career when you're talking about professional sports. Right. So at that point, it's like you go to work every day. You don't want to be surrounded by people you don't want to work with, Like you, you want to work together. You want to feel like you're part of something together And so it's about having the right people in the building. So I think um, in my opinion, obviously, like I'm not a football scout, but just using basic logic, I think it's when, when coaches are saying we're going to take the best available guy that graded out the highest, like what are they, what are they grading? What is that based on? Right? So if a guy just doesn't fit your system, then how is he the right guy for you? Like it doesn't matter if he's grading out crazy with these physical stats and, Like, oh, look, he had this many sacks this year. What, like, all that stuff is deceiving because you have to understand, like, what are we trying to get done here? And can we find the right people to get that job done? Right? If this guy's only ever been a defensive end in like a 4 3 setup and he's always had his hand down, he's always just rushed, he's never covered his zone, nothing like that. And we're like, well, you know what? We, we run a 3 4 and he ran like a 4 4. Let's, uh, let's see if he could play outside linebacker in a 3 4 where he's got to cover the zone or cover the slot or, you know, it's like, And that guy's going to be like, you want me to do what? Like my whole career was based on just like rushing the passer. Like I should go to a 4-3 team, not a 3-4 team. Or if I go to a 3-4 team, at least do something that fits my skill set. Don't just be like, well, you're fast. Go play outside linebacker. You ran a 4-4. Why aren't you fast enough? You know, it's just there's things like that that happen all the time. And then I think you can literally ruin a player's career by trying to do that, by not getting him in the right position in the right system. And obviously you want guys that can perhaps fit a bunch of different systems and um, you know, just physically might make sense for more than one system. But if you're a team and you're looking for particular players based on what you're trying to do, then I think it just makes the most sense to look at what you're trying to do on the field and also what type of people you want to have around. So if you have two guys that are pretty, they grade out pretty closely, one's just a little bit higher in terms of what he can do as a player physically, but the guy who's a little bit lower of a grade... It's just an awesome dude. He's going to be there for you all the time, and he's he's capable of getting the job done, solving the task the way it needs to be solved. Right? That's the guy I want. Is that guy right? I don't care if he ran a four five. The other guy ran a four four. I want the guy who's going to get the job done and the guy who's going to show up every day and not give me that many issues. Right? Like it sounds really obvious, but all the time this stuff doesn't happen. Like all the time, it's just the other way around where we're taking the freak instead of the guy who's just. The good player, the good person, and just the collective whole um, that goes into all four of those coactives. Can he play the game? Does he understand the game? Is he a great guy? And by the way, can he physically just like be on the field with these guys at the pro level? If he checks all of those boxes, that's that's the guy you want to have. He
1: is Cameron Joss, the director of sports performance at DeFranco's gym. Cameron, I cannot say enough how incredible um, this was and how much I enjoyed this discussion as I have throughout this series, but there was just so many really incredible pieces of information here that I know I'm going to be going back and listening to on my own. I just want to thank you on behalf of myself, the listeners, and the rest of the people at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me on, man. I love talking football and everything that goes into preparing players. So it was a blast. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And you know what? This is obviously, I mean, I'm going to have to bring you back because there's just so many different avenues we could have went into. And just obviously there's just so much here more to unpack. I mean, I've been saying, you know, we should be looking at the landscape of problems that we need to solve at each position and finding players that are adept at solving those problems. And And those are the guys we should be targeting. And it's just like to hear some of this even resonate within your discussion really just makes me excited for this upcoming season. And I hope for all the listeners out there that this discussion excites you for the upcoming season as you begin to kind of think about where this fits within your own lens and your own understanding of the game, whether you're a coach, evaluator, or even fan. So once again, Cameron, thank you for joining us. How can somebody get in contact with you? How can they follow your work? When are these books going to be out?
0: I can't tell you when the books are going to be out because we're trying to uh, figure out like the graphics and things like that. I can promise you volume one is going to be this year and very soon, possibly in the next couple of weeks to maybe a couple months at most. Um But in terms of getting in touch with me, the easiest way to do it is uh, my wife runs our operations at DeFranco's here. So she's kind of like our liaison that just because we get a lot of weird emails, believe it or not, from just random people. So she helps kind of funnel the more real things. So if you really want to get in touch with me and talk to me about this stuff, she's the easiest way uh, to get there. And then from there, she can give you my direct information. So her email is Jen, J-E-N at defrancostraining.com. It's all just one word, defrancostraining.com. And she's just the easiest person to get in contact with. She's always on her email and she just forwards everything to either Joe DeFranco or to me. So that's the easiest way to get in touch with me.
1: Thank you so much. And for everybody out there, thank you so much for joining us. And again, on behalf of myself, Cameron, and the rest of the crew at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast, I really appreciate your time. And please continue joining us for this summer seminar series as we continue to look at the nature of the problems that players are facing. I know this episode is going to leave me with a lot to consider as I move forward into this year. So again, thank you. And please join us next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday.